Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome along to another episode of Writer's Routine. This is the show where we chat to an author about the intricacies and nuances of their working day to try and improve the way we handle our own creativity. Today, our guest is MJ Ford. His debut thriller, Hold My Hand, it's just been released. And we talk about whether trying to catch on to a zeitgeist is ever a good idea for a storyteller. Also, we get into the whole publication process and discuss how much say a writer really has in getting his book out there and how keenly he plots his stories and why he thinks that with good planning you can never spot the seams. When it works right, the story you end up with doesn't show the seams of that plotting method. It just reads as a, as a good story and I'll, my own readers will have to decide if I've succeeded in that. Just as when you watch a, um, a good movie, a good Hollywood movie, you're not thinking uh, of the screenplay and how halfway through that screenplay there is a midpoint um, which the collective screenwriters decided to hit. Um, the story to an outsider should read as though it did evolve organically. So stay there, that's all on the way with MJ Ford on this week's Writer's Routine. Hello, yes, welcome along. It is another Writer's Routine, uh, episode number 24 I think. Thank you for coming back if you've been with us since the start. My name is Dan Simpson. Again, thank you so much for giving us a listen. Now, if you've never heard us before, this is dead simple. It's the show that does exactly what it says on the title. Uh, We talk about the daily life of an author to see how they organise their time and their ideas for for maximum efficiency with their creativity. And and hopefully that can influence and help the way we work. Oh, I've just checked. It's actually uh, Writer's Routine episode number 25. So, you know, even more than I can keep track of. Now, if you have heard us before, thank you for coming back. Why don't you tell someone about the podcast as well? Help spread the word. Now, the easiest way to do that is to head over to the iTunes podcast store and leave us a review. You can find Writer's Routine on there. It's dead simple. Write a few nice words as well. Drop five stars if you can. That really helps out with the podcast chart on there. Making new listeners, making struggling writers who could do with a little bit of advice from some of the most successful authors around aware of what we do. And also, speaking of charts, if we had a chart of podcast listeners, well, the ones that leave us five stars would shoot straight to the top. So, hey, it could be you. Have a go. Try and get to the top. You can find Writer's Routine on the iTunes podcast store. 
So MJ Ford is this week's author on the show, sharing his writer's routine. The M stands for Michael, not sure about what the J is, but Ford is definitely Ford. Anyway, Michael, he's been amongst words for a long time, writing all sorts. Uh, He's worked in children's fiction, that's writing to spec, and, and a guideline for a big publishing house. You're very much told what you're meant to do with that. We chat a little bit. He's also ghost written celebrity kids books, and that fascinates me. I've never met an author who's had to work in that way before, you know, very restricted within the barriers of what a publishing house wants from the big name that they've brought in to sell books to write for them. So we'll find out how that works, how they share ideas and the mechanics of collaborative working like that. And now he's just published his first thriller for adults. It's called Hold My Hand and it starts with a young boy being taken by a clown at a carnival. And then 30 years later, a similar boy's body is found. And it's kind of all about the cops who then work on the case because there's a girl who sees both uh, events happening. And the draft title of the book was, brace yourself, Killer Clown. So that kind of sums up everything you really need to know about the direction this book is headed. Also, we'll get one writing tip that could change the way you work forever. It's a really good one today. Nice precise advice something you can do it's all about a video that you can easily find on youtube and it may completely change the way you plot and you move your stories and your dialogue along that's on the way in just a sec first let's get into today's author then mj ford and we start as always with what he sees around him at the place where he sits down to write if i'm at home i'm looking out of the window at a field filled with sheep um, the occasional cow, uh, tractors going past, very rural location, um, quite relaxing. But a lot of the time I leave the house uh, and work in the nearby town in the local library. I find it much easier to work if there's a lot of ambient noise around me. So uh, the coffee shop's a, a good environment in that sense. What, why, why the ambient noise? Why do you think that's a, a quirk that you need? Um, I, may, maybe it just sort of moves me into my own head a bit more um, so there's not really any uh, obvious distractions because everyone's just having their own conversations around me. I'm kind of nerdily interested in desks as well this is something I've uh, developed as I've, I, I've okay. interviewed 20 or so authors doing this when you're not out in the library working yeah. when you're at home in your office, tell me about the desk that you're on. Oh it's really horrible actually it's, um, it's one of the cheapest desks you can buy from Ikea and um, my, my wife is always threatening to buy us a, a nice desk from a proper furniture shop. Um, but I'm, I'm used to the, kind of sort of the nasty scrapes and things all over the IKEA desk by now. I know where everything is in the drawer as well. And it's one of those drawers that, you know, contains thousands of tiny objects that you, you wouldn't want to have to sort through and move into a new desk. It's always, uh, I don't want to be me, but I find that a little bit disappointing. Only because <laughs> when someone imagines an author... You know, you get this romantic ideal of the big oak desk, something that the president would be happy to sit on. I think we'll talk a bit more about romantic ideals in a little bit. Um, So the show's called Writer's Routine. Uh, Let's go through yours then. does exactly what it says on the tin. From the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are writing... Mm. Talk to me through the whole thing. What's going on? All right. Well, I'm I'm normally up pretty early because I've got two young kids. Um, You know, half five, six o'clock. Until about nine o'clock... Um, they boss everything um, I'm getting them ready for school getting, sorting out their school uniforms etc um, once they're at school I'll return to my desk um, and I'll normally read through the t- chapters I've written the day before um, just not so much to make changes more to just reacquaint myself with the, the narrative flow if you like um, and then I always find 
that I work better in the morning. Um, so I work quite intensively, probably till about one o'clock, um, pretty straight and just get a lot of words down on, on paper. Not always great words. Um, have lunch. Uh, my son arrives back from preschool, put him down for a nap. Um, and then in the afternoon, I find that my, my energy kind of dips quite a lot and I really don't have the same uh, the same flow of writing at all. It kind of becomes fractured. I often kind of leave leave bits out, move to different parts of the book, uh, focus on different sections. So um, the afternoon, I'd say, is it is not as productive as the morning at all. Is that frustrating for you? The the the, the afternoon uh, does the kind of workhorse in you? Would you like to be able to write for? eight hours straight with just that little gap in the middle with, mm. with your son I'd love to um, I'd love to be like Jeffrey Archer who I think he says can write 10,000 words a day but I think when, he, when he's doing it he's mostly doing it on a beach somewhere so uh, I don't have quite quite that luxury I mean towards towards the end of the day when my daughter arrives home from school at sort of half past three um, things unravel a lot um, so by, by that stage really I'm not getting a lot of good work done at all. Let's talk about that first four hours then, mm. from about nine till one. Yeah. You say that's very productive. What does productive mean for you? Productive for me, and this this will sound terribly uh, sort of mundane, I think, means word count. Um, I, I normally have a lot of projects on at once because uh, I write children's fiction as well, and they all have tight deadlines um, and they all have a designated word count to reach. So my writing life is based a lot around arithmetic of, of meeting word counts so and, and and now i'm i'm good for um about a thousand words an hour when i'm writing properly so if i write from nine to one o'clock i'd expect to get actually four to five thousand words done um i think i said before they're not finished words by any means but they are moving the story on and they are moving the chapters on and they are getting me closer to the word count i need to reach for the, the novel to be completed you say you've got a lot of different projects on at one time are you focusing on so in those four hours are you, are you splitting your time up between different projects or do you just take on one thing at a time that's your sole attention i'll focus on on one project at a time um so if i i have about three days a week when i'm writing um and i, I won't really mix the projects across across days so you know one, one day i'll be doing i'll do four thousand words of an adult novel the next i'll do four thousand words of a of a children's novel and sometimes that's almost the whole thing um so yeah it's uh, i don't find it at all easy to switch between narrative voices if you like i happen to to know someone at the publisher here at avon and um and we quite often bat ideas back and forth he he's um he's far more commercially minded than i am um and and i think the conversation started uh w with his interest in uh the idea of um of clowns and the, the the place that clowns hold in the nature's psyche, in, in, in society's psyche. Um, at the time, there was a, a sort of zeitgeist for clowns. I think if, maybe it was two or three years ago now. Um, there was a lot of teenagers going around dressed up as clowns, terrorising people. And so that, that's where it came from, the idea of a clown kidnapping a child. Um, as, as we move forward thinking about it, certain things happened. I think that that zeitgeist had passed and also uh the stephen king book uh, it was refilmed um and, and and in a way that's the that's an archetypal scary clown so we, i think we both became aware that um that trying to tap into that zeitgeist was we were, we were maybe slightly behind the curve so the book changed quite a lot and it became more about the 
the main character, the detective character, uh, and, and her psychology. Um, but the but from from that initial idea, I I mean I I went away and um, basically drew up a, a whole synopsis, um, beginning, middle, and end of the book. Um, the ending is a big twist, so I can't really go into that. But 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 that's sort of integral, really, to how the story works. Um, so so drawing up that that longer synopsis. Um, was a real kind of turning point where I think we both realised that we were on to sort of quite a compelling narrative arc. So the idea started with the kidnap of a child by a clown. Um, and it's a historical crime. It happens 30 years before um, before the, the main narrative of the book begins. Um, and trying trying to find a way to wrap up that story, which wasn't awfully horrific and 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 would have made me quite uncomfortable you know in the writing because I'm, I'm i don't really want to, particularly to write about children being killed um trying to find a solution for that is what what what, what generated the the big twist at the end um so i don't want to ruin it um but but it was such a it was such a kind of neat fitting ending actually that uh, it made sense both in terms of plotting but also in terms of the characterization of the villain um his his or her psychology um and also ha- has quite a an, an interesting reflection on things going on in the main detective's life as well i'm sorry that sounds terribly funny. i think that was a fantastic answer <laughs> actually i think it was almost impossible to get right well how about this then you've got your your elevator pitch as it were um child gets kidnapped by clown mm. Then you've got twist at the end. Talk to me about how you're fleshing out the middle. Then how are you plotting this? What, what do you see in front of you when you sit down to write? Well, I mean, I, I, I plot in quite a deliberate way in that um, I've been working in storylining and story creation for a long time. And, and, and I've, I've come across a model which I repeatedly use because it, it, it works completely in story archetype terms. Um, and it's a screenwriting method, actually, um, made popular by a, a, a guy called Blake Snyder. Um, and it's um, in his book, Save the Cat. And basically, it's, um, it's a, a th- typical three-act structure. Um, and it, it lays out beats on the hero's journey through the story from you know from where you move into the kind of the second act where the you know the plot ramps up and the point of no return to a midpoint where you know you normally have some form of twist and then uh, and then the end you have another kind of twist which sort of mirrors that midpoint as well and and wraps up the novel but there there are lots of story beats in 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 Blake Snyder's method I think 15 or so and so I, I plot according to those because I know that if I can nail those beats you know that the, the things are happening at the right time then the story can't fail on some level to be quite a compelling journey and to keep the reader interested in guessing um so so that's what i do in the first instance i have if i have a beginning and an end i plot out those 15 beats um between um and before i even start writing um properly properly writing narrative so that's almost 15 15- stops you have to make on a journey is, is that what you're kind of saying that, that that's pretty much it and a, and a journey which gets more exciting as it goes along as well so it's not it's not a kind of a, a uniform pacing at all it's uh, it, it builds in certain peaks and troughs of drama um tells you you know wh- how to construct a subplot and where to introduce it in the right place so that it, it wraps into the main narrative 
and how much detail are you giving to these beats so you're sat down at your desk from Ikea um, <laughs> you've got your 15 plot points in your mind are they in your mind have you written them down yeah I've, I've written them down and, and, I, and I tend to write them on, on paper as well rather than on the computer um, because then I can uh, I can put them on post-it notes and, and move them around as well and I think quite visually like that about story um, and and what will happen is those plot points at first they'll, they'll be simple bullet points really maybe one or two sentences this happens here um, and then and then they gradually get more and more fleshed out they become sort of longer and longer um, until I've got sort of say 15 paragraphs and, and it's at that stage I still don't really do any real writing at that stage I then um, I then try to, try to think in terms of a chapter breakdown for the book um, as well and and flesh the story out further and further so by the time I actually get to the stage where I want to start writing real narrative I've probably got a storyline of uh, you know 15-20% of the finished word count so maybe as much as sort of 15,000 words just in this happens in this order without you know with a few maybe a few scattered bits of dialogue as I think about them that might fit in certain scenes but it's all tell it's not, not show at that stage I'm sure people will be familiar with the sort of con- creative writing concept of show versus tell. Um, telling's, you know, telling, saying in broad terms what happens. Showing is creating narrative out of that. There obviously are writers who simply start writing and organically, maybe with a small idea of where things are going, but mostly organically let a story unfold. And and I'm just not that that sort of writer. Because I think of my background um, in sort of collaborative storytelling, I, I mean, I, for a long time I've worked in an editorial collective and we work like a TV writer's room. So we bounce ideas around off each other to, to generally expand a story. Um, and if you're in that situation, you can't really have an organic way of thinking. You have to be able to communicate on a, on a level with the people around you in shorthand to say this is what happens at this stage at the midpoint of the story this is why the this is where the sea story folds in it wouldn't work if it it wouldn't work if you have a solitary way of thinking um like as a lot of writers will work um so that that's the genesis of it you're right it's you're right in that it's not terribly romantic um i I would say in its defense when it get when it's when it works right the story you end up with doesn't show the seams of that plotting me- method you know it, it it just reads as a as a good story and re- my own readers will have to decide if i've succeeded in that um just as when you watch a um, a good movie a good hollywood movie you're not thinking uh, of the screenplay and how halfway through that screenplay there is a midpoint um which the collective screenwriters decided to hit um the story to an outsider should read as though it did evolve organically it's quite an analytical way of doing things let's talk more about analysis this is your debut thriller for adults did you analyse thrillers that have gone before and think about what needed to be in this story for it to sell well what plot points you needed to hit red herrings twists and all the like Um, I wouldn't say I I, I, I wouldn't say I analysed previous books uh, i mean sometimes I, I find that my mind does work in those terms and i and i do occasionally recognize 
you know, you know, a midpoint, for instance, or uh, the end of Act Two in a in a in a book or a film. But most of the time, I should be emotionally involved enough in that book or film not to notice those things and just to be swept away by the story. Um, yes, of course, in, traditionally in crime stories, there are uh, there are features such as red herrings, such as the uh, the damaged protagonist. The, the, you know, these days, it's quite unusual to find a uh, one of those traditional. Uh, main characters like Hercule Poirot who really has very few personal flaws himself I mean these days most protagonists are in some way weak internally and and that 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 comes out in the story um, and and it affects it it normally affects them at a crucial juncture and and it's often a weakness they later overcome as well so yes I'm absolutely aware of uh, cluing effectively dropping seeds in a story which will make sense later on uh, red red herrings um one last question about analysis before we get to characters uh, you mentioned zeitgeist earlier there was a zeitgeist for clowns mm. when you thought of the idea did you kind of think did the dollar signs flash in front of your eyes and think this might get an audience i wouldn't go as far as dollar signs that makes me sound terribly mercenary um you just you you want a reader to see a book and pick up the book um, based on either the cover or the blurb, and it's I think it's noticeable actually that there is no clown on the cover of this book. Uh, in, probably in recognition that maybe that zeitgeist had passed, um, maybe in recognition that whereas some people would be uh, attracted by that and, in, and sort of psychologically intrigued, it might turn other people off. Um, the novel when we first began I did have a um, a working title of Killer Clown and I think uh, that was just perceived as maybe too too unsubtle not enough nuance yeah and and again would probably put off as many people as it would uh, appeal to so uh, yeah I'm always wary of zeitgeist chasing the zeitgeist and partly because publishing is not a quick process most of the time um, a book from conception to publication uh, some very very minimum what I expect would be 18 months and any trend in that time it will have passed Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Right, we'll get into today's writing tip. It's one YouTube video that could change the way that you work forever in just a sec. First, I'm doing a big social push at the moment. You might have seen this if you follow us uh, across the internet. I don't want to kind of lift the veil on how things work or let daylight in upon podcast production magic. But basically, I've stopped being really lazy. Uh, I've pulled my finger out and I'm doing things. Every single day, I'm pushing out tips, tricks, and little clips of advice from our show so far. So even if you're not listening to the show, if you finish that week's episode, you can still get some helpful words of advice from some of the most successful writers we've had on the podcast over the last few weeks. So you should get involved. Give us a follow. You can find us on Twitter. It is at WritersPods on there. It's probably the best way to get a quick reply and a nice speedy retweet if you've dished out any praise. Uh, Always take that. Also through Instagram. We're at Writer's Routine on there for nice and glossy filters of inspirational quotes. Uh, And finally, there's always the website as well. The best way to find all the old episodes of the show so far and to get all the different ways to listen to the podcast as well. And you can drop us a message online too. Head over to writersroutine.com. It's time for one writing tip that may change the way you work forever. You see, every single week on the show, we get one little snippet of advice from an author and from a a friend of the show. They may really help what you're working on. It may open the doors to kind of a part of your creativity uh, that had been locked before now. (laughs) I don't know, it may be something obvious that you've never really heard before, or maybe it's something that's so obvious that you've not even thought of it before, or it's something that's just way out there uh, on the far reaches of things that you would consider acceptable for a writer to do. Uh, You may never have even considered it like maybe today's, like a YouTube video. Hi, I'm Cass Green, and the author of In a Cottage in a Wood and The Woman Next Door, and my writing tip is to get onto YouTube and check out the video clip of the two South Park writers talking about their um, therefore-but rule, which is how to plot, um, making sure that between every scene you either can place the word therefore or but... And for me, it's been tremendously useful in helping me to plot. Now you can get more tips and advice from Cass Green uh, by listening to the full chat with her. It's episode 24 of the podcast. You can find that on iTunes, wherever you usually get the shows from. And you can listen to it over at writersroutine.com. So admin done, socials pushed, tips received. Let's get back into our chat then with today's author, MJ Ford. His first thriller, Hold My Hand, it's just been published. It's all about a clown that seems to kidnap a little boy and the girl that saw it happen and then her investigating the case as a policewoman 30 years on. Now, in the second half, we talk about writing with famous people, working on their own children's books, also about the publication process and how much say an author really has in what goes on. And we start with the new one, the novel, Hold My Hand, and the first time that that story crept into his mind. At the beginning of the book, it's, I don't think I'm sort of spoiling anything to say this, a, um, a, a child is kidnapped. And uh, I wanted, and it's in, the, it's in the 80s as well when I grew up. So to sort of reflect that, um, I, I have that protagonist from the point of view of a young girl. And I think, I, I mean, I try to slightly misdirect the reader into thinking that something bad is going to happen to her, and it doesn't. She witnesses the kidnapping of a, a little boy. Um, that was a choice because I wanted a sort of sort of naive style of telling that first story to sort of 
throw a bit of irony between the, 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 the narration and the reader um, but then then it was it was actually more an idea that actually the main character 30 years later should be that little girl when she's grown up that was where she came from um, in terms of uh, fleshing her fleshing her out um, I, I, I know a few police officers and so the, the personality that she exhibits is a something of a mixture between those those people um, but the, one of the themes of the book that kind of a, did become about organically uh, is, is motherhood and uh, the maternal instinct instincts and a sort of slightly twisted and healthy version of that and so I really just wanted to try and build into her character some of that as well so it, you know it absolutely made sense that she was a woman for instance rather than a male detective and a lot of the problems that she has um both very real in her life and also kind of psychologically are to do with that maternal instinct and 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 how she is in some ways uncomfortable with it how well do you know your character outside the confines of the story for instance if i asked you i'm not going to but if i asked you to to write me her biography without mentioning once the story mm. and this incident that happened when she was young do you think you could do it it's funny because some some writers actually follow a, a, a almost like a, a method in terms of method acting where they will they will create a biography for their character in quite granular detail before they even start you know what their favorite music is what you know what they eat for breakfast things like that and, I, and I'm, I'm not really like that um of course as you write a book you you get to know a character you know i'm spending i hope this doesn't sound too naff but i'm spending four or five hours a day in that person's company in in that person's head seeing things through their eyes so you get to know them more and more and you you have a kind of an idea of how they react to things because of that um if you if you asked me you know about Joe's teenage years I don't think I'd really be able to answer straight away but if you asked me to write a short story about it and I could engage with her on the page again and through my fingertips typing then I would be able to do that and and one of the, I've written some short stories um, to sort of promote the book um, which will be published in various magazines and what, one of which features Joe Masters um, a few years before this this novel I mean she plays a very small part but it's nice to see her on the page again. I feel kind of happy in her company, if you like. Can I talk to you about the whole process of publication? I know it's, it's, it's very tough because we're sat here in your publisher's office. So, uh, and I don't want you to be critical at all because that would be useless for both of us. Um, how much say do you get with the whole thing? Do you, do you get a say? I've never asked an author this before. Uh, how much say do you get with cover, with title, with publication? With the content of the book... I have, uh, you know, pretty much complete control. I mean, I have an editor here, and um, she will uh, she will suggest that I make changes to it, and invariably I do um, because I completely trust her judgment. Um, it's not always completely easy because um, when you slaved away at something for a long time and send it in, you're very anxious about what someone else will think of it. So if, if there's any sort of, uh, even if it's quite constructive criticism coming back, the first instinct sometimes is, oh, no, 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 I know better. Um, but of course I don't. And, I, and I'm aware of that because I work as an editor as well. The editor almost always knows better. Um, and, and, it, and if I disagreed with my editor about something, uh, she would completely listened the other way and, and we would come to a, a, a completely happy conclusion most author contracts I think contain a clause saying that the author 
is is allowed to sort of comment on the cover. But in, in practice, I don't know many authors who have ever actually changed a cover. Either asked to, or if they've asked to, succeeded. Because, of course, at that stage, a lot of work has, has gone into it. And, um, and normally, the people who really know about covers and how covers affect the buying market have had their input and come to this conclusion. So uh, if I didn't like the cover... I, what, what legs would I have to, to, to stand on to, to, to really criticise it from any sort of meaningful perspective or you know, you know knowledgeable perspective even? Um, and to, same thing goes with the blurb. I'm not you know I'm not a copywriter. I, um, and I completely respect those who have that job because they do it very well. So I'm not going to ask for great changes to the blurb unless I see a typo, which is well, very unlikely. Was this your title? Hold my hand. Uh, no, it was the publisher's title, and I, I actually loved it from the start. I think I, I loved the whole the whole package because uh, I can see how it works on a kind of intellectual level but also I can see that the book has a certain look where it sort of straddles thriller and mystery but also women's fiction to an extent so I can see how it has has wide appeal and I I like the ambivalence of the the title as well Um, I'm certainly a lot more comfortable with it than I was with the sort of working title we had of Killer Clown Um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's much more sophisticated for a long time, I worked uh, in packaged fiction, which means that I'm writing uh, normally to a brief, to someone else's kind of story idea, um, and and, I, and I, I did that on a freelance basis for the packaging company I worked for. So I've I started off writing books for quite young, mainly a mainly male audience of sort of six to eight year old boys, on a series called Beast Quest. But then I, I moved on to sort of uh, what I'd sort of consider my sweet spot, which is sort of what they call middle grade fiction, eight to twelve year old. Uh, most, mostly sort of adventure stories or mystery stories um, not not sim- not just for a, a male audience in that sense m- more probably for a female audience um, so and I've written novels for teens as well and I've also done some ghost writing um, for, for, for separate clients um, I'm not really contractually supposed to go into the details of those though You mentioned that was your sweet spot that you found it why do you think that is? Why, why, what, what, what makes you say that? Um, it's an interesting age, I think. That sort of eight to twelve. It's it's it, children at that stage are reading independently mostly, um, and they are broadening their horizons quite a lot. Um, so uh, it, they have the capacity to, to to get through quite long stories, you know, adult length novels really. Um, but they're also at a stage in their lives where there's a, still a certain suspension of disbelief. So you can you can explore very wide-ranging topics um and, and and you know fantasy sci-fi adventure you can have you can have kids doing in in books what kids could never do in real life a lot of the time quite you know very heroic or dangerous things when you move out of that into sort of what they now call ya fiction um you tend to still see a slip back towards sort of more realism and 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 I think kind of readers' minds have hardened a bit against the more incredible aspects of middle grade fiction. Um, so that's what that's what I mean. It's it's just a very it's a very impressionable age. It's a very uh, fertile age for story. I think. How do you tap into the voice that makes it relevant for an eight year old? It, that's it, it's interesting. I'd say one of, it's one of the differences between adult and children's fiction is that I. I'm obviously an adult. Um, I know lots of adults. I interact with lots of adults, um, and so uh, I'm writing for my peers in that sense. With children, it's very different, and, and I, I don't really know a great deal of children other than my own or my close family, and I certainly don't hang around with kids of my readership, sort of eight to 
probably 13 year olds um so when you when i write for that age group um often the characters are in some way every boy or every girl in some way a cipher into which uh children can place themselves i'm also very aware of a the tradition of uh of characters in novels for that age group so my characters are, are, are will, will often be broadly based on a mixture of kind of character character archetypes that have appeared in famous children's fiction it's a question that children's authors ask themselves a lot is it how how genuine are we being in writing these characters when really we don't know these children that well and it's quite hard it's quite a difficult age to imagine yourself back at as well i think you sort of you remember your teen years quite well because all sorts of horrible things were happening to you um but but that sort of golden period if you like before puberty sets in is uh is is something of a mystery i think to to me as an adult anyway how do you approach the language that you're writing for for the kids in, in in this story um it that's another interesting question um there are obviously things in terms of content that you can't do in children's fiction and and i think you have an inherent understanding of what those are and sort of language you can and can't use it's mostly i suppose through reading other middle grade fiction that you kind of have an idea of the register of of language that you should be uh, you should be using i don't really think a great deal about the complexity of the language i think because you're writing normally from a point of view and quite closely normally at that age you're not writing from a big sort of distant authorial perspective you, you just sort of gradually inhabit a kind of 10 year olds sort of way of seeing the world and the language flows from that publishers are quite keen to attach uh celebrities to their to their publishing house because you know there's a there's already a guaranteed market f- for for that that person and, and normally what happens is um, the publisher will then try and find uh, someone if, if if the celebrity can't doesn't want to write themselves or can't write themselves um, which isn't always the case um, the publisher will try and attach someone probably in a who has worked in a similar genre. Um, to have an initial meeting and just to see in the first instance how writer and uh, and name brand name get on and at that stage um, there's sometimes a, a, a broad idea from the from the um, the brand name the celebrity about what sort of book they want um, and and it's really a case of just sort of trying to build a relationship seeing if you can bounce ideas off each other and you're both open to that discussion um, I wouldn't really be interested in, in just someone telling me exactly what to write I need to have that collaborative relationship with the celebrity so these are novels they're not Biography. No, no, sorry, no, these are children's novels. So, you know, the, more and more these days uh, you find that uh, certain celebrities are producing children's books because the publisher thinks probably that they can sell quite a lot of copies. Uh, Does it work uh, like it is with you and I sat here right now? So maybe I would... There's a comedy sketch, I can't remember who did it, but where I would kind of read off these ideas and you would kind of... F- Pick out web, isn't it? I think, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you would kind of pick out the gold from the bile that I'm spewing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, sometimes you know, the the person I'm working with is really open to it, and, it, and we have a s- very fruitful discussion, and it's very much a fifty fifty. Um, other times, it, it can be slightly, slightly more awkward in that, that I, you know, I, I, either the, the celebrity uh, has very definite ideas and is inflexible. Um, other times, it's I, I have to carry the conversation, which I, I'm more comfortable with, and occasionally it doesn't work. You know, I've had meetings where we've decided in the aftermath that actually it's not going to work. Us us having a, rela- a sort of relationship around a book uh, and you know we go our separate ways they might attach a different ghost writer or the idea might 
never come to fruition um but but after that it's um yeah we have meetings anywhere really i've had meetings at people's houses at the pub in publishers offices um wherever really the the celebrity feels comfortable lastly the, the debut thriller for adults it's been compared to works by karen slaughter peter mm. james <laughs> what, what pressure does that mount on you moving forward do you know, I'm, I'm relatively circumspect because I have been in the business a while about about the things that are written on, on, on the cover. Um, I, of course, want the book to be a huge success. Um, uh, does do comparisons like that uh, kind of <laughs> weigh it down? I don't know. Um, I, I'm not. I, I think I think readers are relatively sophisticated as well again, about sort of publicity material. The truth will be in you know the word of mouth to be honest that you know the reviews that go online um to whether or not people think it's a good book um i i certainly hope so my family think it's wonderful so what more can i ask <laughs> that is it then episode 25 of writer's routine almost done with thank you so much to michael ford mj ford his first book hold my hand it's out right now you can find handy links over to it on our website it is writersroutine.com also we'll have snippets of that interview with some of the best little kernels of advice and tips that he gave you just to keep it fresh in your mind uh, on all of our socials throughout the week so make sure you give us a follow keep track of that we're on twitter and instagram just search for writers routine on those and if you enjoyed the show why don't you tell someone about it now you could do that in two ways uh, either tell someone face to face i guess if you're really feeling confident that day you can even hand out flyers in the street maybe or the easiest thing to do is to tell someone that you don't know about it it's really simple just find writer's routine on the itunes podcast store and leave us a review also some nice words on twitter are always going to get you a quick retweet now next week a little bit of a change right we're speaking to someone who is a writer, he does put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, uh, more to the point, but he's a co-writer. He's not published his own novel yet, but he did co-write one of the biggest comedy films of last year with one of the most famous comedy writers possibly in history. You can hear from Peter Fellows, who helped create with Armando Iannucci The Death of Stalin next week on Writer's Routine. Make sure you don't miss that. I'll see you then. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.